Well, we took on the question, what is the difference between a spiritual battle and a difficult time? And so we're going to look at more of the difficult time. We spent a couple weeks on the spiritual battle part. But in Ephesians 6, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation or receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So prayer was involved in spiritual warfare, but sometimes we're going through difficult times, not necessarily spiritual warfare, so we defined it as spiritual warfare would be distinguished by our going up against spiritual forces, throwing thoughts, people, or natural things at us to keep us bound, defeated, distracted, or prevented from our God-given kingdom purpose. And difficult times would be recognized by a lack of spiritual forces, and the dominant cause being, I just abbreviated there, I think I did anyway. No, I took it out. I was abbreviated originally just being uh, dominated by, by your flesh, but broke it down this way, by our own bad choices, difficult times are our own bad choices, self-appointed kingdom roles and purposes, sometimes people appoint them to things in the kingdom that God never said they, should, they were to have a part in, disobedience to the commands of the word, Mistakes born of spiritual immaturity or ignorance and even weaknesses that come as a result of the fall of Adam. These keep us from enjoying life, make it unnaturally difficult, make life unnaturally difficult, or even discourage us from desiring to continue. But do not directly engage our God-given assignment, purpose for the kingdom. Now, spiritual warfare causes us to be known and engaged by the enemy. Difficult times, not so much. Difficult times can engage our pride when we speak of it as attention by the enemy because of the kingdom. But kingdom business is not what brought about the difficulties. So people would sometimes blame their difficult times on the devil's coming against me. If Saul were to make all his difficult times he was having in the latter end of life on the enemy, he would be wrong because they were there because of him. He made wrong decisions, bad choices, self-appointed roles. He disobeyed the commands of God. A number of things that he did for that. So, we're going to look at a... I, I wrote down a whole lot of examples, and I was actually working on one different one than the two I put in here. Um, but these two fit together better, so I left it with these two. The first one we'll spend the most amount of time with, and that is the nobleman's son in John chapter 4 and verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum, and when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now when you look at this situation, here's a man whose son is sick and is potentially going to die. There is nothing that would indicate a spiritual warfare situation here. The man is a ruler of, of uh, Israel. He's not necessarily a spiritual ruler. We don't even know if, how spiritual of a person he is. We just know that he's a ruler. He's a man. He's a, I guess, you know, person that we would think of in the, in the government, not in the ruling of the temple, but in the rulership of the city, town, whatever it might be. 
So his son is going to face this sickness that could potentially kill him. Now you could see where that would be a difficult time and that he's having difficulty in it, but we don't have any indication that there's anything spiritual going on, any kind of a spiritual battle. That if there is, it's not, uh, we're not given any evidence of it. Now this man came and he wants prayer. He wants someone to help deal with the situation that he's facing. I wrote in your outline this, this man is not looking for a group of people to pray. He's looking for someone who can come and touch his son. A lot of times when people are involved in difficult situations, they're looking for a group of people to pray. And they uh, solicit many of them. Sometimes they come into church and they tell as many people as they can their difficult situation. And will you pray for me and remember me in prayer? Or can you offer up some prayers? They'll say things along this line. This is not what this man is doing. This man came looking for Jesus. And he's asking Jesus. He's not asking anyone else. He's not asking any of the 12 disciples. He's not asking any other people that are there. Just coming to Jesus. Will you come and heal my son? is what he's saying. Now he came looking for someone who can come and touch his son. What he found is someone who, who could touch God. That's not what he came for, but that's what he found. Verse 48, Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. Now, I can't wait to get to heaven and get more of an explanation on this story because I think there's a whole lot more detail here than, than we're given. But we go with what we have in the Scripture. But it would seem from this story, in Jesus' refusal to go with him, that he had heard something different because he doesn't always refuse to go. Sometimes people come and they ask him to come, and he, sure, I'll come, and he just comes along. But this particular one, he refused. So it would seem to be that Jesus heard something different in here. As we know that Jesus only did what he saw the Father do and spoke what he heard the Father say. So the Father must have shown him something different to do or spoke with him something different to say than what the man was asking for. Now, the Father may have revealed the situation to Jesus ahead of time. Now, in order to understand this a little bit more, I kind of uh, tried to look at this situation in light of people alive today that tell stories of how God uses them in ministry. So when you hear stories of, uh, you know, a Jesse Duplantis or a Jerry Savelle or a Creflo Dollar or a Fred Price, when he was sharing the stories, Brother Hagen, he shared stories about... So there's a whole lot of people that we have that share stories when they're in a meeting and people are coming to have prayer for their difficult situations. And so I tried to put it in, into that and to think of some of the things that were going on. And, and many times these ministers would share stories with us and tell us things like, before the meeting occurred, I saw. And they saw something in the meeting. Uh, Brother Hagen told us one time going into the meeting that he saw six people in wheelchairs on the uh, left side of the stage and that he also then saw himself go and lay hands on them and five of the six got up out of the wheelchairs and walked. Uh, all but one didn't. And when he got to the meeting, there's the six all lined up. And 
he went and did exactly what he saw, and five of them got out. So they saw that ahead of time. There have been other ministers who've been sharing the, the same kind of thing. They saw something ahead of time. They saw this go on. So in, in light of that, and since we're not doing anything new here, uh, even in the Old Testament, Elisha sometimes was surprised when he had not seen things ahead of time. Remember the time the widow woman came up to him? Well, not the widow woman, but the woman with the son came up. And he said, something has happened and God has hidden it from me. hasn't revealed it to him. So he was expecting things to be revealed. Other times people were, had things revealed about, so I, I'm sure that Jesus is walking in this. If they walked in it in the Old Testament and they're walking in it today, and then surely Jesus would have walked in something similar to this. Peter on the roof had God minister to him and showed him, now some men are coming to the door, go with them. And then knock, 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 here comes people in the door. So we know these kind of things would go on. So with Jesus, I'm pretty sure that he saw this ahead of time, that he knew someone was coming. And God had already explained to him, this is what you need to do. In order for this to be successful, this is what you need to do. Uh, he's coming to you, but there's these problems. So you need to say this to him to get him to be over those problems. And we may not be given all the things that were problems for the man's life, but certainly Jesus does not greet him with the most warmest of welcome. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And the nobleman seems to be a little frustrated. <laughs> Please come down before my child dies. I, I'm not really sure what you're trying to get at, get to me here, but please come down before my child dies. So the father may have revealed the situation to Jesus ahead of time. This could have been in an earlier prayer session. He could have been having prayer in the morning, or maybe it's one of those times he spent the night in prayer. And the Lord showed him these things. We know from people as they minister today, and we get more detail on the things that are going on, they've had prayer times before a meeting. They've had prayer times in the day before. They've had uh, been woken up in the middle of the night and told things to do, told things that were coming. So it could have been an earlier prayer session. And Jesus already had this by the time the, the man showed up. Now, it could also have been, uh, this man left probably, as we're guesstimating here, at least about 12 hours before he got to Jesus. Uh, probably left the day before. Maybe he just left super early in the morning. The trip that he is going on is about a 20-mile trip from uh, Cana to, to where Jesus is. This is about a 20-mile uh, trip. So average person walks around three miles an hour. You've got to take some breaks along the way, get some uh, uh, water, get some things that you, you might need, because and, and, you're walking. You're not in the car driving. You're, you're walking. So feasibly, a 20-mile trip could take seven hours. He, he's probably walking a little bit faster because he's uh, anxious to get there. So if he's walking a little bit faster, he's got some breaks in there, we can say that it's about seven hours. He gets to Jesus at the seventh hour, which in our uh, vernacular is about 1 p.m. So if you go back seven hours from that, then you're looking at somewhere probably around 6 a.m. Now, it's not hard to leave at 6 a.m. in the morning and, and just keep on, on going. So if we just assume that he left at 6 a.m. in the morning, and didn't leave the night before, because I can't, it's hard for me to picture this story with him leaving the night before and then stopping somewhere to get a good night's rest before he picks up and goes. I think they just 
the, the son was sick. He was getting worse through the night. And then in the morning, they said, oh, this, he's not going to make it much longer. I heard that Jesus is in town. I'm going down to see if I can catch him. And so probably he just left in the morning, gets on down there at about the, the seventh hour, and he implores Jesus to come. And Jesus says, um, I'm not going. Now, it could be also that Jesus did not receive any of this in an early morning prayer session or before it happened. It may have been that all this came to Jesus at the moment that the man came. Because you've all heard people who have, uh, you know, they've had ministry time, lines coming up, and somebody comes up and asks for prayer, and just right then they see something or they hear something to say. And so they say it and share it and do whatever God tells them to do, and miraculous things happen. But they didn't get any of that beforehand. They got it right then. One of those two scenarios is probably what's happened here. Either Jesus gets it right then, or he got it earlier in the morning. One or the other has, has probably occurred. This is not something that Jesus is just dreaming up on his own. But in this, whether he came in the morning or it came at the instant, it seems that a rhema word was spoken to Jesus regarding this situation. There was a rhema word, there was a spoken word, a revelation that was given to Jesus for this man. This man came to Jesus to alter his situation. We were looking at it before, that it seems that things weren't changed. I think it was on Sunday. Things weren't changed. When we're looking at the woman who was bent over. Things don't change unless somebody confronts the situation. Unless somebody comes against it, it doesn't move. It doesn't go anywhere. So somebody needs to come against this situation, and he was given a word. In that word, it seems that it was simply his son lives, tell him to go home. Something along those lines. So Jesus speaks these words to the man, go your way, your son lives. Five words. Five words he gives this man Go your way, your son, I'm sorry, six words, go your way, your son lives. And that's it. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I, I think I would have liked a few more words in there. <laughs> Just a, a, more comfort. Look, I understand your son had a fever. I understand your son had these kind of conditions, that his condition was like this. The Lord has shown me that this was the condition he was facing. But I have seen that he is now up and just, just elaborate a little bit more. Give me a little bit more on this thing. Go your way, your son lives. I'm thinking, no, he's not. He's, <laughs> I was just there. I came from it. I saw it. You didn't see what I saw. And you could have that argument. You didn't see what I saw. But Jesus says, go your way, your son lives. Now, to this man's credit, whatever Jesus had solved that he gave the harsher answer to in the beginning, to this man's credit, when he hears, go your way, your son lives, he obeys. That has got to be difficult. I can't tell you how. We look at the, the man, take up your bed and walk, and we look how difficult that is. And certainly that was a, a big step of faith for the man to have done that. Rise, take up your bed and walk. That was a step of faith. I can't do that, but he did it. But this man, this is different. It is a whole lot easier to believe God for something in my own body that I can feel than to believe God has worked in someone that I have no communication with. He can't call home and say, uh, Jesus told me to come home. Is everything good? <laughs> <laughs> I can't do that. 
There is no communication. There's nothing. He has to go completely on the words of Jesus. He came for the purpose of bringing Jesus with him. His faith was in a place that if Jesus comes with me, this situation will change. And he is leaving without Jesus. Now, just think of the mom at home. The mom and him are probably talking about this. Maybe it was even her idea. It was at least both of their ideas because he made the trip. But can you imagine if it was even more her idea? Look, I heard about Jesus. Now, look, I got to stay here with him. And take care of him. Because mom's not leaving that in dad's hands. Moms don't do that. Moms stay there and they take care of this, the sick child. That's what moms do. And dads go off and they get the whatever they have to get. That's the dad's job. <laughs> Mom is not about to, no, you're not putting me off on this thing. You need to go make the trip. Plus, it's just better that the, the man would make the trip in those day and days, those days to go on the roads, to, that he would be the one to go. So he's going. Can you imagine going home? Your wife sent you on a trip to get something, and you're coming back without it. Can you imagine what would happen if the son doesn't make it? And you come on home, where's Jesus? Well, he wouldn't come. He told me to go home, and my son was okay. Can you imagine all the scenarios that are running through your head? This is a very difficult thing for this man to do, to just believe Jesus, six words, and go. But this is a difficult time. As far as we can tell, there's no spiritual warfare going on. So he gives him this word. And as I'm thinking about this, when people are going through a difficult time and they come and they ask people to pray, how many have ever, ever been asked by other people to pray for their situation? I'm going through a difficult time, difficult financial time, difficult time finding a job, difficult time with a health issue, difficult time with a relative, difficult time with a house situation, whatever it might be, we have difficult times that come up and we ask for other people to pray. So I wrote down three things. You could probably expand this out to more things, but I don't know. I, I came up with three things. What are you asking for? Or what are they asking you for? First thing I saw, and I apologize, I couldn't fit these in there. More people to ask God the same thing you are, thinking there is power in numbers to convince God to act. When people come and they ask you, pray with me for this, I would say that the number one thing that most people come and they have in mind when they ask you this is, I want more people praying the same thing that I am praying. Thinking that if we get enough people asking God for the same thing, that God will grant it. Now, we understand from Scripture that the effectual fervent prayer of one person will avail much. We understand that from Scripture. But in practice, we don't live it that way. I need more people praying. I need an abundance of people praying. I need to get more people out there asking God for the same thing I'm asking for. Now, I would say that that is the number one thing that Christians ask for, but does it sound like it's a worthwhile road to take? When I think about it, it does not sound like it's a worthwhile road to take. I can think of one or two scriptures, examples in scriptures where this was used and people would use that as a reason to continue to do this. And yet in those situations, there is no hint that the abundance of people praying changed the situation at all. Go ahead in the book of Acts, look up the story with Peter and the people at the house praying. And you tell me when you read that if those people had any effect. I don't see that they did. 
I think that God moved because of Peter. Because when he knocks on the door, what happens to the people? <laughs> they didn't believe him. So there's no faith going on in there. They weren't believing God for anything. Don't use that as an example of what to do and what to follow. So here's the second thing. People come and they ask you to pray because they need strength, wisdom, and understanding to make their prayers more effective. Now, I pray this sometimes with people when they come and they ask me for prayer. Well, okay, I'll, I'll pray. And I pray for them for spiritual strength. I pray for them for wisdom. I pray for them for understanding of the scriptures that they need for the things that they're facing. Now, if you get into scripture, you will find that Paul, in some of his writings to the epistles, about some of the churches that he would pray in along these lines as well. So this seems to have more of a grounding that you can pray for people to be strengthened. You can pray for people to have understanding. You can pray for people to have wisdom. That's certainly in the prayers that Paul wrote in Ephesians and in Colossians that he was praying for the church. So that would seem to be a more feasible way that we could pray. That is uh, certainly more workable than the first way. The third is for people to seek God and hear from Him concerning their situation. Now, we see this in Scripture. I don't know that we see it as practice in, in the, as much, but certainly we could or we should see this in practice. There are people to seek God. I'm coming up to you. Will you help me in this? Will you seek after God and see what you hear in regards to this matter? In scriptures, surely we can see this, that it's, that it's happened. In the Old Testament, they would come to the prophet and they would ask him to seek God on their matter. Um, Saul even did that, came to the prophet looking for the goats, or the, 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 the livestock that was wandering around. And he got more than he asked for on that one. The prophet had a word for him and said, oh, and by the way, the, uh, the flocks that you are seeking... They already made their way back. It's all taken care of. So he, he went there to get that word. They came to Jeremiah and asked him about, should we flee to Egypt? They would come to Moses. Moses, what about this situation? What about this thing going on over here? David came to the, to the priest and asked them, should we do this? Should I stay in the city? Are they going to turn me over to, to Saul? And the word came back, yes, they are. So you need to leave. And uh, even in the New Testament, you'll find that the prophets were involved. They were sought after. Should we do this? And direction was given. And not always was the direction that people understood. Paul came and the prophets came out and they said, you're going to be bound, you're going to, and so forth. And he says, yeah, I already know that. But he, he, they took it as don't go. And Paul said, no, I'm going. And this is just a warning to understand that this is on the way. Yeah, that's fine. He said, I'm ready to die. So they all heard the same word, but they had the different interpretation of it. Now, in these kind of prayers, would God give a rhema word for your situation to another instead of you? Well, when, when we look at this, this situation here, does not Jesus have a rhema word for this man. He sure does, doesn't he? 
did Paul get a rhema word for the people on the ship? Did that rhema word affect the righteous as well as the unrighteous? Luke was on the boat. He didn't get the word, but it helped him. It affected him. So that could, that could help there. In the Old Testament, we see it a lot of times that they, uh, a prophet got a rhema word. But in the New Testament, we might be thinking, well, I have the Spirit of God on the inside of me right now. I shouldn't have to rely on a prophet to, uh, to that degree. And in the New Testament, we see that, that Mary, she got her own rhema word. Joseph, he got his own rhema word. These other people, they got their own rhema word on it, but that so that seemed to stop. Sometimes God gave the rhema word to someone else. So, it's, it may not be something that we have to seek after, but it is certainly something that in Scripture it was done, and it has occurred. And we'll look at more situations where this was, this was going on. And we'll tie it into some other uh, more recent things that uh, we've seen. Now, though the responsibility of hearing is removed, if you get the rainbow word from someone else, the responsibility of hearing is removed. It is replaced with the responsibility of obeying. So I may not have taken on the responsibility of hearing the rainbow word, but I do take on the responsibility to obey it. In the case with Jeremiah and the people from Judah came up and said, should we flee to Egypt? And they asked for him to get a rhema word for them. He did, and they decided before they even came what they were going to do. So when it came contrary to what they wanted to do, they did not obey it. They didn't take on that responsibility, and they paid the price for that. So do you have faith and trust in that person that you're asking? you got to make sure that you do, because if you're going to ask, look, I want you to go and to seek after God, if they receive something for God, do you have enough faith and trust in that person that what they heard is true? Or if they get something, they're going to say, well, you know, that's brother so-and-so. No, I don't know if I really... Well, then why are you going to them? <laughs> so don't just run out there and ask anybody to pray for you along these ways. Make sure it's somebody that, first off, if they receive a word from God, that you would believe it. Because if I'm God... I'm not giving out a rainbow word to somebody else if you're not going to believe it. Because if I did, if, say, that uh, uh, Ms. Ethel went to Mokshan and said, would you pray with me? If Miss Ethel was not willing to submit to whatever Roshan got in the Spirit, if God shares it with Roshan, then God knows Miss Ethel's responsible. And do I want to put that responsibility on her if I know she's not going to hear it? Now, there are times when God did it. With, certainly with the Jeremiah incident, he gave it, him the rainbow word. I know they're not going to listen to you. God already knew it ahead of time. I know they're not going to listen to you, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. So just know they're not going to listen. They're going to do their own thing, but here you go. This is what they're supposed to do. <laughs> so so he, he will sometimes do that because you're not in a position to hear the rainbow word yourself. You're not seeking it out, whatever it might be. Um, so he, he will do that even if you will have already decided not to obey. I, I only say that because I know he's done it in the Word. I'm just going after that. But you have to decide, do I have faith and trust in that person? You can only be certain that so-and-so heard from God. You can't be certain that you did. If you hear from God yourself, there's a certain 
knowing that happens. Well, I, I know I heard God on this thing. But if somebody else heard it, and when you engage in the difficult times that will come obeying that, you could be saying, well, you know, I wasn't actually the one who heard this. So-and-so did. Maybe they missed it. <laughs> and so we have an out there. You have to be careful that you don't, that you don't take that out. Because obedience is harder when you're not the one who received the word. Now, some of the examples I wrote down was uh, Peter with the lame man at the gate. That lame man at the gate was not expecting a rhema word. But Peter gave him one. And the man did obey it. And great things happened. Paul on the ship. And as we said, Jeremiah concerning the flight to Egypt. Let's pick up here in verse 51. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. And they inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday... At the seventh hour, the fever left him. Yesterday, which means he didn't make it back on the same day. Now, that tells me a couple of things. First, if I'm right in, the, in my assumption here that he left somewhere around 6 a.m. in the morning and made it on down there because there was probably an urgency, has he lost some of that urgency? The only reason that you would lose any urgency on this is if you had total trust in what Jesus said. If he had total trust in what Jesus said, he may be going back. He pushed it. I mean, 20 miles to cover in one morning is a lot for some people. I try and be sensitive to that. For I have one, one running buddy. He runs 17 miles every morning. Every single morning. He goes out, starts at 4.45, 5 a.m. He runs 17 miles every single morning. I'm not quite up to that, that level. I get into the dozen, sometimes a 14, but I'm not hitting the 17 every morning, and we've had to exchange a few, few words about that. But uh, on the weekends, he runs more. He gets his long run in on the weekends. His long run is not on the weekdays. <laughs> he's, he's cranking in some miles. He's, he's, John and I, we talk about him. John knows him better. I, John actually knows him. I only know of him. <laughs> so, but we still uh, converse and, and talk about things. But for most people, to cover that, it's going to take some time. Now, if this guy, his name is Frank, if he, uh, if he had that, he'd just pop on his running shoes, he'd be running on down there, and he's done in about uh, two to two and a half hours. He's, he's already out there. He could have met with Jesus. He'd be running on back. <laughs> but not everybody's able to do that. And we don't know what kind of physical condition this guy is in, but what we do know is that from the time he left Jesus at the seventh hour, Somewhere in the seventh hour is between one and two. That's the seventh hour. We cover that entire. We're not saying 115 or 130. It's saying seventh hour. So it's between 1 p.m. and 2 p.m. That's when he met up with Jesus. Because he asked him, when did he get better? Around the seventh hour. And he said, that's when, I, that's when Jesus gave me the word. So we know that's when he interacted with Jesus. That's when Jesus said, go home, your son lives. And so he left then. So he left at somewhere around, let's just put it at the end, 2 p.m. Let's say 2 p.m. If he was going to make the same kind of time that he did there, getting there, that would be 9 p.m. Now it's getting into the dark time. Maybe you know, they don't have street lights. It's not safe. So he may have parked it. But you still have to be a lot more relaxed. Sure seems to be evidence of a good bit of faith 
that he believed the rhema word that was spoken to him about this to head on back. So he inquired of them at the hour when he got better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So what this tells us here is at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the fever's gone. Fever's on him. He's getting worse and worse and worse. Then all of a sudden, the fever is gone. And he's getting better. Because that's the word they use. He said he's, he's getting better. At which, if you are the wife, and you have sent your husband to get Jesus, or you both decided to go and get Jesus, you're there in the house, he's getting better, what are you going to say to be done? You've got a lot of other people that are around there. Can you go on the way and tell him everything is good? Now, they don't have a whole lot of different ways to get there. There's one road they need to, to, to you want that road. Just go on that road. And you go on that road, and then you look for them. So they're going on that road. They are looking for the guy. Looking for him. Uh, sometimes in the, when we get into these uh, nighttime things, the, the, the extra dark. I don't like extra dark. I like extra light. That's my, I like extra light time. But when we get into these extra dark times, and you know, we're running in the morning, and I'm usually running for uh, an hour before I meet up with John, and then meet up with John. But sometimes John has to get going a little bit early, so he says, hey, I'm coming out a little bit earlier, and it's dark. How are we going to find it? Well, I tell them, you know, I'm coming from here. And so we're looking for each other. We are looking for each other. I know what to look for to, to see John. John knows, even though it was dark, he knows the kind of light I have on. I know the kind of light he has. When I see somebody coming up with a light, that's John. I just know that's, that's him. We're, I'm looking. We're coming this way. When these guys are leaving, they're looking for him. He is not looking for them. But they are looking for him. So they're going on down. Guys, we've got to keep our eyes peeled. It's not going to be all that hard. It's not like he's going to get by you. But we're looking for him. And when they saw him up in the distance, they saw him up in the distance, they probably ran up to him. Because this is exciting news. They want to tell him, hey, everything's okay. We don't know what happened. But uh, he was sick. And while you're gone, it just broke and he got better. They don't know that Jesus was involved. They have no idea at this point that Jesus had any involvement at all. All they know is he was sick, the husband left, now he's not. They're expecting that Jesus would come and lay hands on him or do something and minister to him, and that might bring healing. But this thing of doing it from the distance, this is still not in their expectation just yet. So they come on down, they're glad to be able to tell him. They're probably thinking he's bringing Jesus back, we can save Jesus the rest of the trip, he can head on back to where he was at. But this is the, the next day. We don't know what time it was the next day, but we know that it was sometime the next day. So they left where they were. He left where he was. Whatever part of the trip he made, he had stopped, and he picked it up in the morning, and then they met. But they left probably not long after that, and they didn't make it down to him. And they meet, meet up. Hey, he's, he's better. He said, well, what time did that happen? Yesterday, about the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was in the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. Well, of course, he told the story to his whole household. That's why they all believed. He didn't just say, Well, I guess it just happened. No, he told them the story. That's the hour I was with Jesus. I was interacting with Jesus, asking Jesus to come, and Jesus said, I'm not coming. <laughs> but go your way. Your son lives. This is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. 
Now, what, what this man had acted on that brought him to Jesus was not nearly as telling as what got him to leave. That is, the, that is the most remarkable thing. What got him to come to Jesus was not nearly as remarkable as what got him to leave Jesus. He had a faith in that Jesus was able to lay hands and heal people. That's what got him to go to Jesus. But when he left Jesus, he had faith that Jesus just spoke the words and the fever left. He didn't really have a whole lot of evidence for faith for that. That kind of a thing had not occurred, as far as we can tell, a whole lot. Now, Jesus brought out that the expectations that this man had when he came contained some error, but we're not told what the, that, what the error was. Now, many times, just in pastoring myself, we can see error in how people apply the word they know or the form the expectations that they did. You can see people are saying, well, you know, I heard the word taught this way, so I've been doing this. I'm thinking, that's wrong. You cannot apply it that way. Or they formed expectations. No, you cannot form that expectation to that. Now, not always are the corrections received. Sometimes people hang on to what they feel or what they think they know. And they're not going to receive anything to, to steer them from it. This man did. He had a certain amount of expectations. He had some feelings going on on the inside of him. He let that all go away to take on something brand new that Jesus was throwing out at him. Go your way. Your son lives. Right expectations are formed from right doctrine. Right expectations are formed from right doctrine. You can say the opposite of this too. Wrong expectations are formed from wrong doctrine. If we have right expectations... It's because we learned right. We have the right doctrine. If a bad doctrine is revealed, how long does it take for you to drop it? For some people, it's a lifetime. Other people might be a week or two. Maybe some people will drop it in a day. This man dropped it right away. He had wrong expectations. Jesus addressed it. He gave him the right expectations. And the man picked it up. This could be a difference between life and death, healing or sickness and so forth. If our hope or expectation is wrong, our belief will be wrong. Now, I put this in your outline for you. If you are casual about doctrine, your expectations will not rise above the level of mediocrity. You cannot be casual about doctrine. Well, yeah, well, whatever, you know, I think that's what that means. No, if you're casual about doctrine, if you are not pursuing the correct understanding of what the Word of God teaches, then you will not have the right expectations from the Scripture, and you will not receive anything but a mediocre life. Cannot be casual about your doctrine. You've got to be intense. You've got to be going after it. First, this man traveled to Jesus. Secondly, he, he didn't give up. Jesus was not giving him the most warm reception, but he didn't give up. And when then Jesus spoke to him, he returned based on Jesus' words. The foundation for all these actions was what he heard. Everything this man did was founded on what he heard about Jesus. But the one that made the difference is when he acted on Jesus' words to him. 
He did all kinds of things on words he heard about Jesus. But when he got words from Jesus about his situation, he acted on it, and that's what changed his situation. What hour did the fever leave? Not the hour that the man left. Not the hour that the man thought about all that Jesus had done and decided to leave. Not the hour, not the moment that he approached Jesus. That is not the hour. The hour, the time that it changed is when he did what Jesus said to do. If he approached Jesus and Jesus said, go your way, your son lives, and he didn't do that, they wouldn't have changed. He had to take the word that Jesus spoke for him and act on it. That's what made a difference. What you hear may get you to do a whole lot of things, but the power is in acting on what God speaks and reveals to you. That's where you find the power. You're going to act, you're going to do all sorts of stuff based on what brother and sister so-and-so taught. Well, they, this, they taught me this. I'm going to do this. You're going to do all sorts of things, and there can be good things based on what you heard. But then along the line, God is going to reveal something to you. God is going to speak something to you. God is going to say something in your spirit. How you respond when you get that word, that's what's going to change it. How you respond when that happens. A lot of Christians don't uh, fare too well. Now, if you'll turn over to Matthew chapter 8, don't have to spend as much time on this. They're very similar stories. Matthew 8, verse 5. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying... Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. That's very similar language to what was done in the, the other one. It would seem that the other story occurred before this one did. Maybe the centurion heard, because it's not too far apart, maybe the centurion heard what had gone on with the, with the nobleman and used that as a, a stepping stone to form the beliefs that he did. Because it's very similar. You don't need to come. The nobleman thought he needed to come, found out Jesus didn't need to come. He could just speak the word. And maybe he, being a royal person, uh, a person who's in, in government, maybe somehow he rubbed shoulders with the centurion. Maybe he even told the story to him directly. And then the centurion, when he ran into the situation, wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> I know about this. In Luke's Gospel, verse, chapter 7, verse 1, and now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders to the Jews to plead to him, pleading with him to come 
and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with him. When he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things. He marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd and followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, and those who were sent Returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Now, it could be that this centurion heard what the nobleman had been through, and he decided if Jesus could speak the word, and what was afflict, what the fever that was affecting his son left, then what's the difference between a fever and what's affected my servant? And if those things obey him, then these things should obey him as well. And then he began to, God, when, he, when God speaks revelation to you, he uses what you know. I speak to you a lot of times. God speaks to me revelation in running and other things that I have, other things that I, I can touch. He speaks to you in the things that you touch, in the things that you deal with. He's going to speak to you about that. He's going to speak to this centurion in ways that he can understand it. And so when God gives him this revelation, he gives him the revelation, understand this from here. When you say this one go, this one goes because of the authority. Well, yeah, I can understand that. Well, that's how it's going on here. That's a revelation that is spoken to him. That's kind of like a rhema word that's given to him. And so he began to formulate that. And when he sent, Luke gives us the more detail on it. Matthew just kind of summarizes. The man never actually made the trip. But he sent people in his behalf, so Matthew saw it as him himself. But we saw the first, we, we covered this before. He sent the Jewish leaders to them because he figured, well, Jesus is Jewish, they're Jewish, it should work. He said, look, I just want you to tell him. This is how I want you to tell him. Tell him, just speak the word, and my servant will live. And they went there and said, oh, we're going to do one better. We're going to show how good we are. We want to impress this centurion. So they get on out there, wanting to impress the centurion and get him on their side. This is Rome. This is the power of Rome. Let's get him on our side. And so they get on out there. This man is worthy for you to come. Oh, this man has done great things for our nation. Oh, we want you to come to him. And then the centurion looks out and he sees Jesus coming with all these people. Wait, that is not what I said at all. So he gets his friends. And he sends his friends, look, you guys, I can trust you. This is what I want you to do. Tell him. He doesn't need to come. He just needs to speak the word. And he spoke the word. And it was done. He was going through a difficult situation. As far as we can tell, there was no spiritual warfare going on. There was nothing hindering the gospel, hindering the, uh, the, the action of any of the gifts that God had put in. The centurion probably doesn't, may not even see Jesus as a last resort. But whatever help he had at his disposal as a Roman centurion... It was not good enough to take care of what was coming against his servant. Now, if you want to see how stupid some people are in their interpretation of Scripture and trying to read into it, there are people, they call themselves Christians, who actually read into this and say that the centurion had a homosexual relationship with the servant. And that's why he was uh, so much into 
into all this. No, he was not. <laughs> but they'll, they'll read into these things and pull all this stuff out. Um, <clears throat> that's wrong. This man was looking for someone who could touch God. He got one who was willing to touch his servant. Jesus was willing to come and to touch his servant. The centurion did not need Jesus to give him a rhema word. He already had one. All he needed was Jesus to fulfill the rhema word he already had. I don't need you to give me one. I need you to fulfill it. If you just speak the word, the rhema word he got is the authority that is on Jesus. He does not need to be there in person. He can just speak the word. And these things leave. Oh, all right. But that's what he had faith for. And that's what he pursued. The centurion was not casual in his doctrine. So his expectations were high and correct, causing Jesus to be amazed at his faith. This man is not coming and asking for large numbers of people to pray and to get God to move. He's not looking for people to pray that he would be strong in his difficult time. That's not what he's asking for. He's given Jesus the opportunity to speak in command. Now, this is the rainbow word I have. I need you to just speak in command and I know this stuff will be done. I think I left this in your outline for you. In this encounter, it seemed Jesus could move this way not because it was a new thing God wanted to do, but an existing principle that someone took the time to understand or received the revelation of. And that's why he was able to move in this. Someone took the time to understand or to receive the revelation of this. Now, I'll put this in your outline for you. You can write this in. In order to walk in a principle, you must either understand it or by faith accept it. In order to walk in a principle, in a spiritual principle, you must either understand it or by faith accept it. Now, accept it is defined this way. To take or receive something offered. To receive with approval or favor. To agree or consent to. So a whole lot of people will say, well, I just accept that by faith. And they are questioning it every step of the way. You may say that you accept something by faith. But God can tell whether you accept it. This centurion accepted this. Now, he understood it. He stayed with it and he understood it. The nobleman didn't understand it, but he accepted it. So two ways that you can walk in this principle. Understand it. Centurion understood the principle. He's telling it to Jesus. Look, I understand this. I walk in this every single day. I just walk it in this level. I understand this. You do this and this is what's going to happen. The nobleman has no understanding, but he accepts it. Those are the two ways you can walk in these principles. Complete acceptance or stay with it until you understand it. You can understand some of these principles and when you understand the principles, then you can get them to work. Wishing, assuming, imitating, or partial understanding that misses some of the important parts will not bring it, apart, bring it to pass. It won't do it. There's all kinds of Christians that are wishing that this thing would be healed. They're assuming 
that if I do this, it'll be healed. They're imitating what someone else did to get healed. Well, I got a little bit of understanding on that. Help my ignorance on this. Is the only opposition to being able to use this principle for others, their lack of understanding and failure to call for it? Is the only opposition to being able to use this principle for others, their lack of understanding and failure to call for it? Now, Jesus did not minister to people's difficult situations with what he believed and understood. That's not what Jesus did. But what they opened the door to him through their belief and understanding, through what this centurion believed and understood, and through what the nobleman decided to believe and didn't understand, but decided to believe, they opened the door for Jesus to move and to change their difficult situations. Now, outside of the gifts that could supersede many of the roadblocks, this is the way that you're going to change your situation. There are gifts that go on. I think of when Jesus interrupted the funeral procession that was going on down the road. Uh, didn't seem like anybody accepted or understood anything. But the gifts were operation, were in operating there. When the gifts were in operation, they can uh, surpass a lot of these things. But they're there to get you a kind of a jump start. Now you need to get your faith to catch up. Not everybody does that. Gifts are as God moves, but faith is as we move. Remember Peter and John when they came to that gate? They moved some things. They understood some things, and they understood how to get him into a place to receive. Now the centurion thought himself unworthy, and Jesus too busy to receive the visit. But understand this, Jesus did not. Jesus did not see himself as too busy, and Jesus did not see the centurion as unworthy. Boy, I tell you, there's so much of a lesson we can get from that. But we can count ourselves unworthy for things that God has already sent our way and shut it down from receiving. Understand, Jesus didn't go to his house. He stopped where he was, spoke the words, and then went on. Never came to him. Don't suppose things you feel you feel upon Jesus. Don't, don't suppose that the things that you feel, don't put them upon Jesus. Or you may move yourself out from what he wanted to bless you with. Well, I don't feel like I'm worthy of that. All right. I thought you were. I was ready to give it to you. But hey, <laughs> if you don't think you're worthy of it, that's fine. And he, he pulled back on this. This is a man of great faith. Jesus was remark, re, remarked about his great faith, but it didn't mean everything about him was perfect. Now, Jesus knew his role and place in the army of God. That is the helmet of salvation. He knew his role. He knew his place in the army of God, and he functioned in it. He didn't function in someone else's role. He functioned in his. The centurion knew this is not a role I operate in, but I know someone who does. I don't operate in this role. I understand that it's, that it's in operation, but it's not something I operate in. But Jesus does. I'll go to him. As long as the body neglects putting on their helmet to wear one more desired. Sometimes, well, I don't like that one that God gave me. I want this one. 
or one they feel more qualified for, up or down. Sometimes God gives us a helmet. Oh, I am not worthy of that helmet. Oh, no, no, no. I'll take this lesser helmet over here. Or sometimes God gives us a helmet. What? Oh, come on. I am way above that. <laughs> and, and people do this. People do it. Um, if we do that, there will be missing some chains in the command. And that can mess some things up for us. And looking for prayer for, from others when we encounter difficulties. Give you a couple of things here. First off, stay scriptural in your expectations. Stay scriptural in your expectations. Don't get expectations that are beyond scripture. Study the scripture. Understand what you can expect and expect it. Don't extend beyond what you know to be true. Well, I know this to be true, but I don't know that to be true. Don't extend beyond it just because brother or sister so-and-so is. Don't follow their example. Believe for what expectations you know to be true. Just because others do it doesn't make it true. And it doesn't mean there's something you ought to follow. If I need to be the one to hear and operate, get others to pray for me to receive strength, wisdom, and understanding. If I'm in a place I need to hear from God, I need to know what God says about this, well, maybe it's time for me to get out there and say, will you pray with me? Pray that God will show this to me. I need to hear this from God. I need to get this word on what this is going on. Will you pray with me that I would receive this? That's a way that you can pray. Don't just go out to people and say, hey, pray for me. Go with them specifics. I need to hear a word from God on this. Will you pray with me that I will receive this thing that I need? If others have a role, I can receive from, get them to walk in that for me and draw from them. You don't have to operate in every role. There are some roles that you're not, you don't have the helmet for. Other people have the helmet for that. So draw off of the roles that they have. All right, well, I don't need to be a one-stop. You know, we all don't need to be Wawa's, trying to have everything that you need to you know, we got the coffee, the milk, the snacks. The... We don't need to have everything. What am I supposed to provide? What, do, what is the helmet that God has given me, and what am I supposed to provide? Now, if I need something outside of that, then I go to the persons, other persons in the body, and I've received that from them. That's what the centurion did. I don't operate in this. Jesus does. The nobleman did. I don't operate in this. Jesus does. And they came to him for that. wrote here, but what value is there in getting great numbers of people to ask God for the same thing? Too many times we are settling for this thing of asking for everybody to pray for me. The more people I can get to pray for me, the better result I'll probably have. You find me that in Scripture. Like I told you, there's some places where people did it, but I don't know that those people had any effect on the end result. I may not be battling spiritual forces, but I am fighting things that are internal. Fighting things like ignorance, false wisdom, and assumptions. I'm fighting things like weakness, insecurities, and uncertainties. I'm fighting stupid actions and failures to obey. 
I'm fighting wrong expectations and unscriptural beliefs. I'm fighting long-term conditions and the excuses that I've allowed for them. If I blame my difficulties on spiritual forces, instead of seeing the real cause, the real condition will likely continue. You want to get rid of the real condition, you got to deal with the real cause. If you look at your difficult situation as having a spiritual root, and there isn't one, and you're not dealing with the right condition, you're not dealing with the right cause, and you're going to continue to have that same condition. Same thing, if you're dealing with something that is spiritual and you come after it natural, you're not going to change the condition. So we've got some more to look at in this. We've got some more examples. I've actually got a, a bunch of examples. I don't think we're going to get into them all. It took us a little while to get through these two, but they lay the groundwork for us, I think, pretty nicely so that we can understand some of the things that will come in the, in the ones here and the ones that are next. Because we are sometimes just involved in difficult situations. It doesn't mean that you did anything wrong. It doesn't mean that you didn't. You may have. But even when people did something wrong in the Bible, God was still willing to deliver them from it. He's still willing to help them out. But we've got to realize, I did something wrong, repent of it, got to take care of the cause, and then we can get on with, with what needs to go on. But if you didn't do anything wrong, and you keep trying to find something to repent, you're not dealing with the true cause. Now, one of the things we're going to take a look at here, as we get on, on down the road, is many times you are going to be in a place where you can be a person who helps people seek God in these things. You're going to be one of those people that can, that can seek, help people to seek the word that God has. And, uh, you know, as we, grow, as we progress in life, you know, when we're young, we're doing certain things. As we get older, we're doing certain things. Uh, things can, what we're doing for God changes. This is one thing that doesn't require us to go out and do a whole lot. But if I get wind, someone is going to need something on this, and I can be one of those ones who prays, and, and presses into God to get the, the word that is needed, you can do it. There's examples in Scripture where people pressed in to get the word that someone else needed. And they acted on it, and it changed their situation. So we're going to take a look at some more of those situations, some of those things, more to share with you on that in the weeks to come. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example that you give us. Your word is just filled with people who have done things that help us to understand how we should do things. And as we learn from their example, learn from the wisdom that we gain from them, we can change our situation instead of just fumbling around and just doing whatever seems to be right and whatever feels right. But our situations don't change. I thank you for the help that you give us on it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Any comments, questions? Did I forget anything in the blanks? Anything to add? Sharon says, very informative and inspiring to understand the word more clearly. And then later on she has a question. What do you mean by God gives some people helmets they feel unworthy of? And the second question, what are the helmets in this case? The... Um, the helmets, as we were describing them when we were going through it, the helmet in the Roman rank gave their, 
the ranking. And in the body of Christ, we have different rankings. Some people are called into a prophet's ministry. Some are called into a teaching ministry. Some are called into uh, helps ministry. Some are called into uh, just all kinds of things. There's all kinds of roles that are there. Paul was given a role, and you can hear it in how he writes. He very often feels like he is unworthy of that role, but he walks in it. He stays with it. He sees himself, I, I, I don't deserve this. I was abusing the people of God. I, I don't know why God, but God did. God gave it to me. He's walking in it. But you can see he doesn't feel that he's, he's worthy of that. Um, you go back in the Old Testament, you look at some of the priests, they decided we are worthy of a greater role than we have. <laughs> and that didn't go over so well. So there's times that God says, this is what I have for you to do. And it, sometimes it's, it's not enough. Lucifer himself was one who felt like his role was not good enough for him. And he had one of the highest roles in heaven. And he decided, I want a higher role. And certainly that's how he fell. He's going to bring other people into it as well. There's a lot of people in the body of Christ. They've been called to be pastors. We're not satisfied with that. I'm going to be an apostle. There have been people who have been called into an apostolic ministry. I'm not satisfied with that. I've decided that a prophet is more fitting for me. And I want to be a prophet. And uh, uh, different things. Brother Hagin would share things in his, his role that God had called him to be a prophet and a teacher in that order. And if you heard, I don't know if he, if he told those stories in any of the recent ones that I shared, but um, does, it, does anybody remember the story where he told where he actually ended up in the hospital? Was that one of the things that I, he ended up in the hospital because he was disobeying God? And God actually came, you now Jesus came into the hospital room and they talked for an hour and a half. He says, I remember one time he was teaching, he says, I have not shared everything from that hour and a half conversation. He said, well, if you did, it would take an hour and a half to explain everything that happened, and then you have to elaborate to help people to understand what you already understood in the conversation. And so I remember the one meeting, he was in there sharing all that, and everybody said, yeah, we're here, come on. <laughs> They're all ready to, to take the whole thing. But he said, um, I'll, t I'll give you this part of it. He says, you have not done what I told you. I told you that you are a prophet and a teacher. And you say that to people. But you are living like you are a teacher and a prophet. The prophet's ministry is first. The teaching ministry is second. That was for him. That's not overall. That was for him. So he had to make adjustments and change it. And he, he from that point on, went prophet first, teacher but you know, sometimes you get that, that role, and he would tell you, he'd be the first one to tell you how overwhelming that role was. And that, when you feel overwhelmed, you surely don't feel worthy of the thing. And he would sometimes feel that. I feel more worthy in the teaching area. I, I feel like I can handle this. That prophet one, man, it just seems to be above me. So sometimes we're, we're not walking in what we, we needed to, to do. Um, Thinking in the scripture, the, um, oh, come on. His name's escaping me right now. And it's a really, not Jeremiah. Who's the other, other prophet from the day? Nope, not Ezekiel. Ezekiel was in the other, other one from the homeland. 
um, Isaiah. Isaiah, remember he was called up into heaven. And God told him, this is the ministry I have for you. What's, what's Isaiah say? I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. So God said, take one of those coals and cleanse his lips. And he did. He received it. All right. I will take on that role. But for the beginning, he did not feel worthy of it. So there's a lot of times that people are not feeling worthy of the role. They, don't, they feel like the role is beneath them. They feel like that role is unimportant. They feel like I need to have a different role than that. We have all kinds of ways, but it's keeping us from operating in the role that we have, the role that we should have. And we have to make sure that we get past that. We have to become, become satisfied with it. I don't totally understand what some people go, go through that. Um, I, I know my role is to be a pastor and teacher. And those are my roles. I'm not saying in any particular order. I'm just saying I know that those are my roles. Uh, I don't desire the ministry of an apostle. I don't desire a ministry of a prophet. I don't desire the ministry of an evangelist with the signs and the wonders and the things that are going on. I don't, I, there's no desire. I love being a pastor teacher. Absolutely love it. Every day I wake up, Lord, God, just this is great. Love this. Love this role. Um, thoroughly enjoy it. But sometimes the enemy is trying to get you to be either come unsatisfied with the role that you have or, as in the case with Brother Hagin, when God was moving from one thing to another, um, keeping you from, from doing it. Go back into the role that you had. You're better off in there. <laughs> so these are the things that will, will happen. But if we do that, a lot of people that are walking in the prophet's ministry are walking in the prophet's ministry in such a way that I have a word every day. And Ezekiel didn't have a word every day. Isaiah didn't have a word every day. Jeremiah didn't have a word every day. But these guys have words every day. I, to me, that's, you're, you're hearing something different. You're not satisfied with the role that you have. You're trying to expand the role and uh, to make it something more. And um, we have to be real careful about that because if I operate in the role that God has for me, if we have sergeants being the sergeants and lieutenants being lieutenants and captains being captains and generals being generals, the army works. But if everybody wants to be a general, or everybody wants to be a captain, or everybody wants to be a private, we don't have an army. You have to have all the different roles going in there. The centurion had this down. He's, he's fun to look at from that. Does that answer Sharon's question? Okay. Can the roles God assigns us change? Oh, they sure can. They sure can. We see it in the word that it happens sometimes. Um, remember Paul and Silas were operating in a certain role in the, in the church. I'm sorry, Paul and Barnabas were operating in a certain role in the church. And God said, as they were meeting together, separate for me, uh, Paul and Barnabas, for the work to which I have called them. So they were called into a role. They were not operating in that role. But at that point, they were separated to that role, and then they operated in it. Um, Ezekiel didn't operate in the prophet's ministry all his days. But there came a day when he stepped into it. And he certainly grew in that role and became, um, I think, one of the most in-depth prophets that there was in the Word of God. Um, same goes on with Jeremiah, Isaiah. Uh, David was called to be a king, but he was not a king. So he was other than, he was a shepherd. 
He was a captain in the army. He was a fugitive. He was all sorts of other things until he finally came into that role. Uh, he knew what he was called to be, but he was not in that role just yet. So yeah, it, it will certainly, it can certainly change. It doesn't have to change, but it can change. 